0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at KOPN.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. Today on Speaking of the Arts, we explore Haiti and fine art. In the second part of the show, Executive Director and Curator Tom Pichet from the Daum Gallery joins me along with the gallery's exhibitions coordinator, Matt Rayner, to talk about what they have coming up at the Daum this spring. But first, we're going to take a trip to Haiti, courtesy of my first guest. Author Alison Cofelt. Hello Alison. Hi, Dana. <laughs> I feel a little more nervous than usual today as you are not only an author of exquisite thoughtfulness, <laughs> but you are also the host of the True False Film Festival's podcast series, as well as a graduate of the excellent Transom Radio Production Workshop, which I'm very envious of. Um, so I should probably up my game a little bit today. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. This is great. It's great to be back at KOPN. I, I love community radio. It's, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So your book, Maps Our Lines We Draw, a road trip through Haiti, came out in March of last year and manages in just 130 pages to be at once a philosophy on travel, an overview of historical and economic turning points in Haiti's history, an insightful look at the damage often wrought by good intentions, and an evocative look at the culture and beauty of the country. There is so much to unpack in this slim volume that we are not going to be able to do it justice in just 25 minutes. So tell us the origin
1: story of your fascination with Haiti and how it also started thanks to extra class credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah so I was um, a sophomore in um, high school actually I grew up here in Columbia so a sophomore at Rockbridge High School. I had a class with a teacher named Matt Cohn. He's um, since he and his family have since moved away from Columbia but I mention his name because many people who I've gotten to talk to in Columbia have some you know fond memory of him and he assigned extra credit to read a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. He had another class at Rockbridge that he was teaching and the, that class was going to be Skyping. Actually, Skype was not a thing. Uh, they were going to be doing a phone call. I just use it as a stand-in for long-term, <laughs> like, long-distance calls. Skype was not a thing. They were going to be doing a phone call with Dr. Paul Farmer, who is the one of the co-founders of Partners in Health, and so and Dr. Paul Farmer is featured in the book Mountains Beyond Mountains. So I read Mountains Beyond Mountains. I became really interested in Haiti and, and their work there, and then, you know, that was, golly, probably about 10 years before Maps and Lines We Draw came out. Okay, so it, it was really it was really a class project, and then the book just fascinated you, and you couldn't get Haiti out of your mind. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I was really interested in Haiti for a number of years, probably seven or eight years before I finally went to Haiti. And I was also really interested in other a lot of other topics, at, you know, too. I think one of the things that was really powerful about reading Mount Van Mountains and reading about injustice and inequality as a high school student was that I was really looking for a way to kind of explore the world beyond the walls of high school and kind of get out of sort of the insular drama of high school. And so just even reading about a far off place, even reading about these people who were doing this big, this big project and these big lofty goals was in, in some ways kind of a, an escape in a way. I love the
0: fact that you were so thoughtful so young. I don't think when I was 17, 18 I was doing anything other than thinking about what I was going to buy at the shops at the weekend, you know, what makeup I was going to buy or something. <laughs> So I'm sure I was concerned with that, too. <laughs> I had no concept of the world beyond my small town. I knew I didn't want to be in my small town, but There you it. go. So in the summer of 2013, you set off for an 18-day trip to Haiti with a suitcase of supplies and a backpack and the contact of a friend of a friend <laughs> to learn, as you put it, how much you didn't know. And thinking back to that week or so before you set off, were you
1: daunted by the trip? I think so. I mean, I had been wanting to go to Haiti for a number of years and had not because I didn't really have, I didn't feel that I had any particularly special skills that I was bringing. So I didn't speak the language. I wasn't um, bringing any kind of skilled labor or expertise that wasn't available there couldn't I couldn't have put my money on a trip towards you know paying someone to or like funding the building of a house or something there so I hesitated for many years in going and so when I finally was ready to go I, I was excited and then I was also like I say I think the first line of the book was that I was you know a little bit nervous um because it was I was meeting people that I I, I didn't know I was you know who I didn't know <laughs> right did you know you were writing a book back then? So this is such a great question because I've been thinking about it a lot even this week. I did. I had a sense that I was going to be starting graduate school in the fall and I went on this trip and I thought I, I would really like to write about this time that I'm gonna be spending in Haiti. But I didn't really think of it in in terms of a book because I think a book at the time felt way too daunting. And I had, you know, I had not even written like I don't think I had written anything that had been published at the time. And so in the interim years of writing the book, I had essays and other things that came out, but the idea of writing a book just felt way too big. But I, I just read a piece this week that talks about, is a, a, a piece in The New Yorker on um, how we make decisions. And one of the books they profile in this in this article, it talks about aspirational decision-making and how we sometimes sort of gravitate towards things or like move in the direction of things, even if we don't articulate what that aspiration is. And that really resonated with me because I think I had that aspiration somewhere, but I, I wasn't ready to even vocalize it to myself. But while you were there, you were taking extensive notes. So had you
0: not taking those notes, you wouldn't have down the line been able to write a book. So if you backtrack into that, then right. maybe you kind
1: of knew. Exactly. And exactly. And that's why it was so nice to have, have read this piece this week about aspiration, because I thought, that's that's it. That's it. I think I had these aspirations, but I wasn't ready to articulate them. But I was moving on these hunches of like, OK, I'm going to take really good notes or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write something. And so therefore, I'll need to take good notes. And, and so, yeah, I think sort of tricked myself into it in a way. So you were thinking more in terms of s- short essays. Yeah. And I guess
0: certain parts of the book, have certain parts of the book been published as individual essays? They have,
1: yeah, but um, the whole book, exactly, and then the whole book sort of follows this narrative of, of, a, of a road trip with Dr. Gardie. So it, it definitely you know reads as a full book, but yes, some some excerpts have been essays. Yeah. I do, I love the structure and the immediacy of how you write.
0: You use the present tense when you're in the road trip, and then you mm-hmm. use other tenses when you're talking about you know, historical facts. And so it feels like I am sitting next to you the whole time. There is one part early on in the book where you talk about, you just say, I scratched. The seat, the grey vinyl seat, or something, and I could—I felt I was sitting there, and I could kind of hear your (laughs) nail on the seat. It was—it was very, very present. And it's—it's, I guess, classified as creative nonfiction, which Mm. has components of journalism, components of travelogue, historical accounts, economic statistics, and you employ a a very interesting self-interrupting style where you have a thought and then you switch to a historical fact and you go back to another thought, and so you're hopping back and forth in the narrative between your own thoughts and, and external facts, how much of a struggle was it to work out how to tell the story
1: and who would narrate it? Oh, that's I love that question, because I think I thought about that for about two years. <laughs> and you did such a nice job of, of succinctly describing it. I don't know that I, I'm so, I should practice that. Um, <laughs> it was a really big struggle to figure out who was, who, you know, I think I, I always knew that I was going to be narrating it on some level earliest drafts of this um, in the essay forms didn't have me very present, embodied as a narrator. And so thinking about how embodied the narrator is, whether that's the narrator scratching the the seat, as you point out, or whether it's the narrator kind of stepping back into the background to let this story of the United States involvement in a coup in Haiti kind of unfold. those are Those were a lot of took a long time to kind of suss out when is our narrator really present and with us and kind of guiding us like by our side and when are we when is she sort of fading into the background and so the narrative persona was something that that took me a long time to to kind of figure out what needed to be there and also to come into a sort of comfort with and
0: it's such a huge story you pack a lot of information and so again you know you ended up Following, you took basically two days of the 18 day trip, which mm. is the narrative, the present tense. I'm in the car with this doctor, I'm doing this. And that is only two days of the 18 day trip. Was that? immediate to you? Or was that on like the fourth or fifth, of rewrites? <laughs> yeah, that, that structure came out.
1: Yeah, it was definitely on a <laughs> way later in the rewrite. I had a really, I had a really fruitful conversation with a writer um, named Maggie Messett, who um, has, a, has a great book about South Africa called, um, she was a journalist working in South Africa for about 10 years, and wrote a, a lot of pieces in newspapers and magazines, but also um, then wrote a book about it. And she helped me really conceive of um, the journey um, of the book, when we were thinking about book structure of drawing this map. and then when I started to think about the map, um, so I literally had like this huge map that I redrew on my wall <laughs> um, on on butcher paper, and then I had I thought, okay, what what can we how can we kind of move through time and space because the earliest drafts really felt like we were jumping around a lot, and we needed some sort of some sort of anchoring points to be able to move through to be able to you know to i think we need these anchoring points in the narrative of of this two-day road trip in order to be able to jump to me in a high school classroom you know like eight years or ten years before and then also to be able to jump to like the haitian revolution several hundred years before so those kind of points um on the map as we progress on this road trip served as those anchors and then the the rest of the stuff can kind of expand and contract around it Right. In the first version, book one, because I think when people,
0: people that don't write books, and I am one of those people, (laughs) you think, you know, you spend all these hours and months and, you know, years writing a book and then it's just done. But version one is very different than version five, which is the one maybe that's published. So in version one...
1: What was the structure? I don't know. <laughs> I now I'm serious. You know, I think I had all of these vignettes that that were um, these moments of like these scenes that had happened, and then I had oh well, you got to know this, and you got to know this piece of history, and then well, let, oh let's talk about t-shirts, and and so I don't think that it was probably as messy as I'm remembering. i you know <laughs> we tend to remember it sometimes we remember things a little less, a little more harshly at times, but um, I do think. You know, the structure was sort of it, it really it hadn't found its structure yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot. It was probably twice as long as it is now. And it was just a lot of just everything that I could kind of think to get in there. And it was a lot of thinking on the page rather than trying to think about what needs to be in and how do I um, sift through. This uh, I like to think of it as like footage, right? So I think the first draft was in many ways just like, what's all my footage? And then, okay, now that I've become really comfortable with this, these reels of footage and these images, what needs to be there and in what order and how and how do we move through it?
0: And then you have to kill your favorites <laughs> That's sometimes. Right.
1: <laughs> That's right. I guess there
0: were things that you really wanted to
1: put in that ended up not making the final version. Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. But yeah, that definitely happened.
0: I remember several years ago asking a question of William Lee T. Moon when oh, he gave no. a talk at the library about whether he had written about other countries. And he said that no, and I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> he would not trust his insights as he would only be a visitor and that you can only truly know your own country. And at that time, I had just completed when I first came here, I had this a blog that I'd had called Cowgirl Bling Adventures in Middle America about my 13,000 mile road trip across the Midwest. And oh. I had all these short essays and vignettes about odd museums and interesting people and the world's largest pencil collection <laughs> in a basement in you know, a small town in North Dakota. And I was wondering what to do with these. And when he said that, I, I basically just canned everything. Oh, Because I thought, I'm a foreigner here. And so I don't, I don't trust no longer trust my own judgment. So talk about how you avoided avoided being an unreliable subjective narrator and established your own narrative authority because I think that's probably something that was a struggle. What authority
1: do I have as a narrator here? Absolutely and I think you know it's a question that the authority piece also I think comes in part with a persona that you just asked about and the identity that that persona carries so you know I I really didn't try to mask the fact that you know like on the first couple first dozen pages you know I, I let the reader know you know I don't speak the language I'm here for this amount of time you know what are the things that we need to know so that if it comes up later you don't feel like I'm tricking you into thinking that I'm some kind of like scholar who's been practicing Creole for 30 years like so I think there's there's that piece of thinking about the order of information, um, and then I do think of other books like Innocence Abroad came to mind, um, the Mark Twain book, and um, Graham Greene's Quiet American. Like there are there are books where in fact sometimes this this position of visitor can be um, if you own it and you kind of interrogate it, which is. What you were talking about with the the self interrupting form that comes up in my book, the chance to kind of interrogate your stance as visitor, your privilege as visitor, your ability to travel and and have geographic freedom as visitor, and also the way, the ways that you might see something differently those those feel really important to me in my writing. Even now, when I write about things related to Missouri, I try to keep a sense of curiosity or or wonder or just kind of trying to say, well, why is that that way, you know, rather mm-hmm. than just accepting it for, for how it is.
0: I forget who said this, but uh, somebody wrote that travel is 90% pain and 10% recollection. <laughs> 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 I can um, see that. <laughs> it always kind of struck me because, you know, the stories you tell afterwards, you know, they oh my goodness, I can't believe how long I was <laughs> stuck at the airport for, or you won't <laughs> believe what happened to me on the road, we broke down. Um, and you comment in the book about the, how the word travel and its origins is in the word travail, as in bodily or mental toil. And when you travel to places where life is less physically comfortable than it is in your own life, there is a dichotomy, I think, between like, the temporary discomfort that you're experiencing as a traveler and the reality of the lives you encounter where any struggle is just day to day. It's not going to go away. It's not temporary. It's you know, in perpetuity. How did your trip alter your idea of travel?
1: You know, I think one of the biggest things that this book tries to do is really draw um, the narrator and, and, and writing it. I try to really think about the the privilege of being able to travel and the privilege that we have, that many Americans have, um, of being able to just move freely. And I think also, I mean, even with a lot of what's going on in the, in the current you know, moment with immigration and and the news cycle around it, just the ability to have that geographic freedom is something that I think sometimes just feels like an assumption for a lot of people, and not something that we think about as as a privilege. And so that's a big part of the book um, is the opening. Um, Chapter even talks about the feeling of of spinning the globe underneath my finger um, when I was a kid um, and having this globe that, you know, I play with sometimes and and so just feeling like that movement and the ability to travel even when it's uncomfortable or or discomfortable can, uh, or leads to discomfort, I should say, is something that I think is both a privilege, but also makes us more connected to the world around us. If I had lots of money and could start a charity, I would like to take
0: children from in tough situations in America and give them a passport and take them to other countries, because I think that America is such a huge country. It's so inward-looking, and that for a lot of young people, the idea of movement, of seeing another culture, of realizing that this this area that they feel trapped in, that there's more beyond it. But unless you can see it, unless you can experience it, you you can't envisage what it's ever like to be out of it. So I think think travel is a huge privilege um, and I feel endlessly lucky that I have got to do that. One of the ideas that you talk about often in the book is the idea of what is here Mm. and what is there, the idea of otherness or separateness, we and them. And it's kind of an idea of home and away. And eventually, for me, when you've been away a long time, you stop being sure what is here and mm. what is there. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm caught in a limbo. Is my here, America? People say, how often do you go home to England? When I say <laughs> we, do I mean English we or American we? So I'm kind, right. of, I'm kind of trapped in this limbo in between. Talk about your idea of
1: here, and there, yeah, no, that's a that's a really. I, I'm sure that you're like home to my house in Colombia, <laughs> or home home to my you know my well, place of origin it. and family. <laughs> yeah, I think you know one of the things that this book really aims to do, and, and I think it's evident even with the title "Maps Are Lines We Draw," is it it aims to ask um, readers and the narrator certainly like uh, when I was writing this book, is a question I asked a lot of um, how do we construct borders? Um, how do we construct how, when do, where do we decide the extent of our connection or um, compassion or caring ends, and when when do we decide? You know, well, we could extend it further. We could we could see um, sort of. I think of, when I think about this, I picture it sort of like a, a circle kind of emanating out from someone. Kind of like how wide does that circle go? You know, does that extend to your home? Does that extend to your neighborhood? Does that extend to your community? Um, here in Columbia or wherever you're living, does that extend beyond your nation, your national borders? So those are questions that come up. With in this book, and then I think you know the, the pieces of history and um, some of the the geopolitical pieces that come into play too, um, that you mentioned earlier in the introduction, kind of ask us to see the United States and Haiti as having this shared and connected history and relationship, mm-hmm. um, and to kind of expand that that circle of. I guess, a responsibility. Right. Let's dive into the book
0: a little bit. Besides you, the narrator, the main person who shares our trip through Haiti is Dr. Jean Gardin-Marius, who founded OSAPO, which is translated as a public health organization. Tell us about him and his story, how he really started out living on the streets
1: in Port-au-Prince and then ended up with a medical degree. Dr. Gardy is one of the, you know, <laughs> somebody should write a book about it, they? <laughs> they should. <laughs> it's um, fascinating. He's, yeah. He's one of the most remarkable people I think I've ever met, certainly that I've ever met. And he did, he started out, he lived uh, with his family when he was, for the first several years of his life, and then ended up um, being homeless on, on the streets of Port-au-Prince. And then through the, um, basically a couple of lucky breaks and and also meeting an American who was in Haiti doing some work um, who's a physician who offered to pay for his medical school? He was able to become a physician, and so yes, Dr. Gardy is. I met him through a local connection, actually, as I say, a friend of a friend in the book. But my physician's friend in town knows Dr. Gardy. so that's <laughs> how I met him. And then the these two sort of days center on our road trip together.
0: And what is extraordinary is he was he was playing football serendipitously. Somebody said, you know, could see that he was struggling, and said, do you want to come and help out in the hospital,
1: come Great. and help me out.
0: And then before long he's doing minor surgery
1: <laughs> Yeah, any Yeah, and it took a couple of years, exactly, but he's, you know, he's, he worked in the pharmacy for a little while and he proved himself there and then he worked as an assistant for these other people and then he proved himself there and then they were like, oh, do you? And so, yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty um, wild story. He has a lot of insight as a Haitian about well-intentioned aid
0: organizations yeah. that really can leave a lot of destruction in the wake. So would you read for us a passage it's in chapter six where Gardy talks about the damage done by badly thought
1: through good intentions. Yeah. Guardy's fingers play over the steering wheel with fast taps as we shift the conversation to other nonprofits. I heard of an NGO the other day that gave out 200 US dollars to all the families living in the program area, he said. It was supposed to last six months. The total cost of the program was $175,000. Think of what else you could do with that money. Think of it. You could build something. Pay salaries, buy medicine, get new health care equipment. I say, yes, exactly, he says. So why would they do that? I say, why would they do that? He says, why would they? Guardia is speaking from the bottom of his lungs and the back of his throat. Because if they do something sustainable that really helps people not be poor, where would the group be? What would they do? He says. He waits for me to answer. They'd be out of a job, I say, or out of volunteer work, I say. Exactly, he says. Let me tell you another one, Gardy says. A program gave out bags of rice. One for each child in the family as part of a two-year program. What do you think happened? Didn't take long, he says, for people to start borrowing children and alternating days at the distribution point. Then rice farmers in the area stopped growing because their market had dried up. Then, he says, remember, this is a two-year program. People started having more children, Gardy says. And what happens after two years? The group leaves and the community is worse than when they began. Gardy tells me about another program. He says, they decided to give participants who are HIV positive, free medicine, a new house, food, a little money to start a business, and paid for their children to go to school. Okay, I say, this seems to address the root of many diseases, poverty. He says, they give him a house and medication and food and money and school. Well, many people came back after a week, came back a week after they got the money and said, I was at a market and someone stole my money. Can I have more to start my business? Did they give out more money? Guardy shrugged. Do you think the people were lying? I think it's a lot to give, he says. More people got tested. They heard about what happens if they're positive. Right, if they're HIV negative, they don't get anything. Yeah, and then he says, yes, and their neighbor has a new house and money to start a business. Imagine. Mm, I say. Imagine, his voice cracks to a whisper. Imagine people being sad that they're negative. I blink. Mm-hmm, Gardy says to the empty air. People are upset because they don't have HIV? Yes, he says, because they're given so much. No words come. People wanting HIV for the benefits. It's too much, he says about the program. It's too much, I repeat. Too much to grasp, to take in. I have long had issue with really mission trips
0: that go overseas, which I just think are imperialism in a different guise oh here's my faith you should have the same faith as me and and you know a lot of NGOs it's the same issue you should think the same way that I do we're we're here to help rather than being a partnership which I think is what Guardia is saying come over here and listen to what we need don't come over here and tell us what you want to give us and you've seen him I think since then were you in Nebraska with him last year that's right yeah has has uh, Has anything changed? Have NGOs
1: recognized the damage they do, or are we still blundering through the world thinking that we're helping? Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I did get to see him. I mean, his his organization, OSAPO, um, the public health organization, is a Haitian-run organization. Um, The employees are Haitian. The people they serve are obviously Haitian. And they're able, because of it being this community run organization, they're able to have conversations that, frankly, outsiders just can't have. So, can you pay for this healthcare? Or if we have a sliding scale, where can you fit? And so, you know, not that healthcare, yeah, so there's just able to have, they're just able to have some of these conversations that, like I said, outsiders can't have. And so, you know, he does, at times his organization has received funding from some of these bigger ones, um, and at times, they haven't, and so I think it's just an ongoing struggle and an ongoing challenge.
0: He is an amazing person. Or do
1: you think he might ever come to Columbia, Missouri? He has been. Oh, he's been here. Oh. Um, he. I, I would love for him to come back. He was here about a year and a half ago, I guess. The medical school. He's. Um, he's good friends with a an emergency physician at the university and um, that he brought he came and gave a lecture um, as part of the the grand rounds for um, for em so it was it was really i got to see him for i was headed out ironically like heading out of town the next day but i got to see him and hear his lecture and hang out with him and but it would be fantastic if he came
0: back yeah it would be amazing allison Covelt, thank you so very much for coming in allison's book maps are lines we draw a road trip through haiti is available at skylock bookshop and you can also hear allison talk at the boone history and culture center on on Saturday, February the second, at ten thirty in the morning, and she will have books available and can sign them then. That's thank right. you, Alison. All right, thank you so much, Diana. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on eighty nine point five FM KOPN, Columbia. And after the break, we'll be back with Tom Pichet and Matt Rayner from the Down Gallery. Stay close to your radio. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts and to my next guests, Tom Pichet, who is the executive director of Sedalia's Down Gallery, and Matt Rayner, exhibitions coordinator for the gallery. Welcome to the show, gentlemen.
2: Thank you. Good morning. Thank you.
0: So, did I pronounce your names correctly?
2: You did. You okay, jolly good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Sedalia, small town, 20,000 people, set amidst the cornfields of west central Missouri, is home to an incredible collection of over 2,000 works of contemporary art. A collection so enticing that a curator left his job in Syracuse, New York, to move out west. And it all happened because a very reclusive, humble and unassuming radiologist called Harold Down made a fortune investing in mutual funds, lived next door to an artist and quietly started collecting art. So Tom, you are that curator.
2: I am. Tell us about
0: the Dow Museum of Contemporary Art.
2: Well, I love, uh, yes, nestled amongst the, the cornfields, and that's that's absolutely true. I, the, the college, the, it's part of State Fair Community College, and the college is situated on an old farm. We still have the old pond out back, but it drew me from New York State, as you say, and When it first opened, it got a lot of attention, because it was such an unusual location, not just for an art museum, but a contemporary art museum. And not just a contemporary art museum, but a museum that specialized in abstract art. I mean, that was really the core of the collection. But I knew about it back in Syracuse because of their interest in contemporary ceramics. And it was a, a program that had national recognition and that is a strong area in my background. And so I, um, you know, some people turn 50 and buy a Corvette. I, I moved to Missouri. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're very glad you did. So it started in 1999 was when the museum first opened, right?
2: Well, they began construction then, and I think it opened in 2002, in February. Okay. Just... just um, a month,
0: and Dr. Daum had donated five hundred thousand dollars to the State Fair Community College Foundation to start the Daum Art Acquisition Endowment, and then I think uh, your predecessor Doug Freed was raising money from the community as well, and then Dr. Daum gave an additional two point six million to build the museum. To help
2: build, right? And that that um, five hundred thousand was matched, so the there was an endowment for acquisitions of a million dollars at when the. The museum open, which is you know, a really great thing, Um, and it continues on to this day. We recently received um, Dr. Dum died just about two years, a little over two years ago, and um, we received additional monies for the endowment after his death. So it right now, I think it's right around two million, which is. A great thing for a small museum.
0: It, it is. I think it was December two thousand and fifteen, and his estate gift to the foundation was for the proceeds from the sale of his property. Yes, which I read had been estimated at eight hundred thirty-seven thousand dollars, and that was to be added to the existing Dowmark acquisition endowment. Um, so prior to his death, you have spent about even a shopping budget of about seventy-nine thousand dollars a year for artwork purchases, and I'm guessing that's gone up quite a bit since then it
2: has boy you've done some homework
0: <laughs> amazing what you can find on the interwebs I guess, I guess so. rooting around
2: <laughs> yeah which is um it's a, a great privilege you know before when i was in syracuse i think i had to wait maybe three years to to get together forty thousand dollars and so this is such a, a change and it's um it's a great thing to be able to continually add to the collection the thing about dr dom was that once the museum opened in 2002 he didn't stop there with his gifts to the museum um, every year he purchased he would help purchase upwards of three hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of art so so this helps con- we don't buy at that level currently but mm-hmm. um, the endowment helps us to um keep adding things to the collection
0: and whilst he was still alive if you saw something that you thought would be a good acquisition did he have to approve it I mean it was kind of still his collection or had he let go of it a little bit and it was up to the museum to make their own decisions
2: Um, I think we we established a very careful balance between Mm -hmm. those two impulses
0: so tell us about Dr. Down.
2: Um, well, you're right. he was he lived out in the woods outside of Sedalia in a house that he had built it it, it um, included a gallery that where his collection that he donated to the museum was had been housed early on. Um, but then he continued to to put things in there and they were usually promised gifts to the museum. so he would live with things for a while and then they would um they would come to us. he he was a radiologist and unusual for someone who is not trained in art he he really had an affinity for abstract painting and i don't know if i've made this up or if this is really true but (laughs) but the idea is that you know he read um, x-rays all day and that overlapping of form and the idea of light through looking with light coming through the, um, the x-ray form and, and the overlapping of flesh and bone and that kind of veiled I- um, idea you get through an x-ray, um, it led him to a, a sincere interest in color field painting. Hmm. People like Helen Frankenthaler and Jules Olitsky and Friedel Zubis, these were all people that he collected um, because the work to him had this relationship to, to his, his work looking at, at X-rays.
0: That's a great theory. Let's just, just say that's fact. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah.
2: I don't know if you I'm clever enough first. to have, have made it up. I think I think I must have heard it.
0: It sounds like a solid theory. <laughs> so within the Down's collection, I mean, you have works by many famous contemporary artists and like Helen Frankatala, you said, whose work actually was just at Sega Browdis Gallery in their Masters oh, um, exhibit. Mm-hmm. They had a couple of works by her. Robert Motherwell, yes. Sol LeWitt, Andy Warhol, yes. um, amongst many others. And of course, what you see, as in any museum, mm-hmm. is just just a tiny percentage of what exists in the storage vault. So mm-hmm. you have 9,300 square feet of exhibition space and you have 6,000 square feet of storage space. Do, um, do you ever do tours <laughs> of the <Up> storage? storage. <laughs>
2: um, no, you know, museums are, are um, sensitive about storage and and, um, and keeping it, we call it the vault. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, um, we, we typically do not have the public in there. Because? just for safety concerns and um, too much breathing um, <laughs> and we want to surprise people when new when new things come out
0: so tell us a little bit about the permanent collection and what what else you have in it
2: um, well we can we collect primarily american art and we and that's not entirely true but it's uh, the bulk of the collection and we collect art pretty much post 1960s so it, it's contemporary um, I think the earliest piece is around 1967 and within that, that range we have a collection of paintings starting with the um, colour field people, Frankenthaler, etc. We have a strong collection of ceramics, as I said that's what drew me here, contemporary um, ceramic work and scu- and sculptural ceramics as opposed to functional. We don't mm-hmm. really have anything that works um, for tea or coffee or anything like of that nature. <laughs> and it, it's the rare piece that one can lift by oneself, which is unusual for ceramics. these are these are really large scale mm. scale sculptural works. um we have a very big collection of photography um, and it's almost half the permanent collection at this point. We just um, we had a donor in Kansas City who specialized in collecting photography, and he and his wife made those gifts and then more recently, we just received 137 a collection of 137 American landscape photographs from a former resident of Sedalia who made his career elsewhere but um, remembered us in his estate.
0: And that's on display right now.
2: and okay. that's where we're putting that up even as we're here
0: <laughs> magically yes
2: and we also have a, a very nice print collection graphics um mm. works on paper
0: what do you think is the appraised value of the collection is that a, is that public information well
2: you know when it changes constantly it's a figure that we don't always talk about but it's uh, it's significant for a community like sedalia
0: right mm. i think I think Doug Freed many years ago said it was worth about $2.5 but I'm sure that it's, that was probably an ancient figure at this point.
2: Yeah, yes. These are Well, you know, Helen Frankenthaler alone, um, who died um, not that long ago, maybe 2011 or something like that. Um, but her estate now is being represented by Gagosian, which is mm, one of the largest right. galleries in the world. And so I think her stock is, is always going up.
0: And I think the one that he had bought in the 70s, I think he bought for $16,000 or something, which was a lot of money at the time. And that's
2: it was, but um, it was a, they're prime examples of, of Frankenthaler's work. We have two paintings by her. We have um, a ceramic work, an unusual ceramic work, and we also have a woodblock print by, by Frankenthaler. The
0: pricing of art, I think, is very fascinating to people who aren't in the art business even to those who are in the art business just how something can go from you know being worth five thousand dollars or one thousand dollars and suddenly because of circumstances or good pr someone has a good marketing team then suddenly Mm -hmm. they're worth several hundred thousand or a couple of million and 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 then there's you know the old masters of course there's only, only one of them so i mean they sell for you know What seems like ridiculous amounts of money, you know, 20, 30, 100 million (laughs) (laughs) dollars.
2: It's true. And it's, well, it's fascinating. And it's, um, I'm astounded and and sometimes um, discouraged by it because Mm -hmm. it it takes art out of the public sphere. Um, A lot of art is seen as commodities and it's stored in warehouses and it really doesn't do anybody any good except for the investor.
0: Right. Yeah, because the artist doesn't make any of that original money. So if you sell your painting for $1,000 and then um, you go on to become famous or whatever happens in your work, is changing hands for $50 million. You only ever got that first yeah. $1,000. It's the investors yeah. that make mm-hmm. the
2: money. Um, I, they, and they're trying to change those laws, but they, they move slowly. I think in California, the artists do get a, um, some sort of um, residual from hmm. if, if the resale reaches a certain limit
0: that you kind of retain some rights or yeah
2: a little bit of royalty well yeah because it it's, you, what you're saying is true i mean if you if someone bought something for 1000 and then 10 years later they sell it for 5 million it yeah. or even less time sometimes it, it turns around even quick, right. more quickly
0: and that's true too you know a lot of people want art to be donated for you know non-profit auctions can you donate a piece of art it's good for the artist they get the value against taxes and so they don't they get the material cost right. so mm-hmm. if you donate a piece of art and the price maybe is a thousand dollars but it costs you hundred and fifty dollars in materials that's the that's the tax you get to take off you don't take off the value of the work because I guess I can understand why who, who says how much it's worth it's only one worth, What somebody buys There's no intrinsic cost on mm-hmm. any piece of art, and that makes it complicated mm. too. So, Matt, you are relatively new. You started your job in January. January, yeah. Um, you are an exhibitions coordinator and registrar. That is correct. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, are you still pinching yourself that you got such an awesome job?
3: Yeah, I am.
0: <laughs> what is your What is your role in sale?
3: Well, um, I'm uh, the exhibitions coordinator. So, like this month, we're turning over pretty much the whole museum, I'm installing three shows um, at one time and uh, so that has been a lot of fun for the past three weeks to move, move things around, like you said, the, the Frankenthaler painting right. we've moved that around and
0: Do you wear white gloves?
3: Yes, white <laughs> gloves or, or rubber gloves, it's very a little nerve-wracking sometimes
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So what are the shows that you have um, that are being put out right now?
3: Currently, um, we have pairings, which Tom curated, it's a great uh, selection, selections from the collection, so he paired um, paintings and then some sculptures in the, our big gallery.
0: Based on mm. what? How were you pairing them?
2: Based on my gut. <laughs> 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 well, it's, it's uh, taking things that are maybe from the 1970s, like the Frankenthaler, and then putting it with a painting by uh, another artist not really affiliated with her or her time period. We have a Dirk de Brook which is from the 1980s, and it's paired with the Frankenthaler Trespass from 1977. And looking for affinities of style and uh, treatment of medium... But it's, it, but it's, it's not really it's, a right
0: answer, is there? I mean, like it can be whatever you want it to be.
2: Well, there. when you look at them, there's a superficial, um, no, I shouldn't say superficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there's a very deep-seated um, affinity between the two. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great selection. And, and there's you can
3: see some of the thinking that goes behind putting the two pain- paintings together. And um, they have a conversation between one another, which I think is really strong.
0: Mm-hmm. And that, that's one of them. What are the other two? You have The Hill Becomes the Valley, American landscape photography from the P. John Owen collection, which you mentioned, which is a recent bequest acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that collection.
2: Well, we're most happy about some of the, the the biggest names in that collection. We have There are two Ansel Adams photographs, vintage prints, two well-known works by him. There are a number of uh, photographs by Brett Weston, who is also a significant figure in American ceramics. There's a little Imogene Cunningham, and there's a, a suite of photographs by the early color photographer Elliot Porter. So those are the those are the big names in it. And uh, the work looks at the mostly the southwest, northwest of the United States, and most of the photographers are ascribing to the type of photograph that Ansel Adams made so famous. His his um, The group that he was part of, Group F64, Weston is part of that, Imogene Cunningham is part of that, and Ansel Adams as well. And so the the collection sort of documents the next generation who Mm -hmm. studied with Adams in his workshops or worked with him, um, but were pretty devoted to the ideas that he espoused
0: reading from your website it says taken as a whole the owen collection is a celebration of the drama and splendor of america's natural environments."
2: yes these so are dr- these are dramatic photos yes. that
0: float your boat <laughs> yes <laughs> and that's up until may right end yes, of january, january
2: 26th to may 26th
0: it's, uh, i'm i'm curious my you are a photographer i'm curious yeah. about you mentioned that half a big part of your collection is photography how does digital photography fit into the fine art pantheon and do you think it should be there or not
3: Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, maybe early on it was hard to uh, to make a, a case for digital, but now it's 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 so becomes such a, a great medium, and you can barely tell the difference between a gelatin silver and a inkjet print. You know, the resolution's so good. You know, I I think a lot of the fine art photographers still shoot with film or shoot large format, but digital is definitely right there with film
0: now. It seems like. Everybody thinks they're a photographer these days. And so this idea of fine art photography and what constitutes fine art within the photography realm is something that I felt I struggled with because I would get a lot of photography coming through the art league and mm-hmm. some of it was extraordinary and some of it was people's holiday photographs sure. and and so you know where is that cut off how do you define fine art photography from holiday snaps where you know where is that line is it in composition you know how how do you define it
3: i define it i think it's um concept and and also dedication to craft and printing is big and important you know to make a a print of a photograph is different than seeing it on a um on a screen or on instagram and so like a really good print is will knock you out and it's like a, a nice it's an object you know becomes an art object at that point so i think of course rules of composition but also Context: What what's the idea behind the work, and, and does it have a strong idea?
0: Tom, any thoughts on that?
2: I, I was doing a little research for this show, and and one of the things that I was struck by was this idea that, um, photog- that fine art photographers uh, train themselves to always be thinking about image, and how what they're looking at could be made into a an ima- a frozen image, mm. and I I think that that is maybe, one of the things that separates the the um using your iPhone from really thinking seriously about images. And this is a question that's been going on for for probably since the start of photography. Mm. Um, is it really art? Um uh, I, I juried a show probably twenty years ago and I was part of a panel of jurors and we gave first prize to a photograph and the sponsors of the exhibition were horrified. Mm. They said, you know what, it's not that's not really art. Mm. Um, so there's that lingering notion that, that it isn't. But um, as Matt said, you know, it's the dedication and the craft of, of photography. You know, you, you have a certain image that appears on the film, but then there are, are ways to manipulate it to bring out the drama. And that's what Ansel Adams was, was known for. Right. Make, you know, making one area darker, one area lighter, and doing that through compositional manipulation, just like a painter would mm. or a draftsman or something like that.
0: Now, the Pedro and Owen collection that you have coming up on display, as I said, was a, a bequest acquisition. Do bequest acquisitions happen regularly? And I'm I'm sure that they're not all created equally. Do you have to sometimes say no? And how do you say no nicely when someone's saying, here, take this giant collection that my parents... <laughs> gathered over many years that is beloved in our family we want to give it to you and you're like oh i don't think so
2: i think there's a stock line that i've used for a long time you know thank you so much for your interest in sharing this information with me but um the nature of your collection lies outside the collecting oh. goals of the the museum which Excellent. is pretty much True. the case
0: right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much the case So back in 2002, I think when you first opened, there was an article in the New York Times um, written by Stephen Kinzer who wrote, if some people on the East and West coasts still think they have a greater intrinsic interest in vanguard art than their brethren in the Midwest, the flowering of these museums, he was talking about other ones in Kansas City and St. Louis as well as Sedalia, suggests they may be mistaken. Now, contemporary art is not always... The easiest art to get people interested in. How much of a challenge has it been here in the Midwest, say, than in Syracuse, where you're kind of closer to the epicenter of New York and that kind of vanguard movement? Have people been confused by the collection, or did they embrace it in a way that you expected?
2: Um, I think Sedalia is unusual in that there is a real core group of people who are interested in the arts, in having their, their notion of art expanded, and are, have been really willing to go along with the ride. On the other hand, I think that sometimes I, I wouldn't schedule certain types of art in Sedalia. I, I, I um, don't want to not offend people, but I, I'm interested in observing community standards. Hmm. um in a way that maybe it wouldn't have mattered to me in syracuse
0: in terms of nudity that kind of thing or? oh
2: nudity is a big issue
0: hmm.
2: yeah it's a big issue especially when we do school tours hmm. um, and they can spot a nude i'm I, we had a sculpture uh, um, by Sergei Isupov, a very well-known contemporary ceramist, and um, it was a head of a human, it was probably three feet tall, it was a big massive thing, and he paints his sculptures in addition to sculpting them, and um, there, on it were two little figures of Adam and Eve, they were probably less than an inch high. and we had a letter from the superintendent it was oh really yeah it was an issue and i was so taken back by it i thought what what <laughs> you know people want to be offended sometimes and they um, do. They, mm-hmm. they go out of their way but um so i think that that's something i didn't deal with so much in syracuse on the other hand you know new york casts a very big shadow and it's mm. lovely to not have to um be in it <laughs> i'm glad to be in the sun <laughs>
0: So as, w- as well as collecting work, um, Matt, I think it comes under your job description, I guess both of you really, but you are also involved with deaccessioning or removal mm. of certain works from the collection. And I'm guessing that's not kind of a garage sale. Like how, how do you decide that something is now m- moved beyond the remit of the uh, collection? And, and how does one offload a work? <laughs>
2: Well, it's funny you bring this up because we just were speaking about this yesterday. Um, I'm, I'm conservative, um, in it, when it comes to this because I think that objects tell the history of a collection. So sometimes, even though they may not fit in the uh, overarching collecting goals, it tells the history of a collector or it t- tells the history of the institution. Um, that being said. We have very specific, and we have not deaccessioned anything um, since I've been here, and I don't think anything has ever been deaccessioned from the museum. But the potential exists, and so we look at it in terms of what is the character of the collection, and in our case, as I said, we collect, pretty much contemporary artwork since 19, the 1960s. And sometimes in large gifts, there are things that fall out outside mm-hmm. of that. So um, in thinking about our collection, there are some photographs from the 1930s that really don't have any companions in in the collection. They would always be out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a very small Henry Moore sculpture that doesn't really have any any friends in the collection. And so those th- things could possibly someday be seen as deaccession priorities.
0: How does one do that?
2: Is well, it through
0: auction houses.
2: It it needs to be a very public event. It's it's not you don't sell to a, a private person. You you try to make it as public and a white as possible. van in the back
0: parking lot. <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, because collecting is is our most sacred um, endeavor, and we have a fiduciary responsibility to. The collection to our donors and to the public so we want to make sure that they, that we are all on the up and up about this we make it public through usually through auction that's that's the most mm-hmm. common way and then any funds realized they come back to the museum but they specifically go back to acquisition right they don't they're not used for general operating or building or anything like that right they should ethically come back to the permanent collection <laughs>
0: Um, As we're talking about money, let's talk a little bit about the economics of running an art museum in a small town. Um, You don't charge any entrance fee. It's free to come and see the exhibits. So where does your funding come from? How do you keep the doors open?
2: Well, we're on the campus of State Fair Community College, and they're our parent. And they provide a significant amount of support, um, especially in terms of salary and benefits and uh, the physical plant. Mm. So that's a big relief right there I don't have to make payroll (laughs) Um, and we have endowment we in addition to the acquisitions endowment we have an endowment for operations we have an endowment for education um so those kick off a certain amount of money every year we do earned income through sales of catalogs through registration fees sometimes and we also sponsor an international trip program every year and that has a a built-in donation to the museum. Hmm. We have an active membership program and that also um, is a a source of earned revenue. And then we are uh, proud recipients of money from the Missouri Arts Council yearly. And we do other foundations and donors as the situation warrants. So it's a real consortium of of funds.
0: And presumably having a major benefactor like Dr. Daum is kind of a magnet for other donors too so once you have a major donor people think oh well yes i talked good enough dr Dow, it's good enough for me yes <laughs> yeah. and especially
2: in the, in the in our community and and people that knew him but just recently we, we sometimes we we're approached by people who know about what the museum collects and they have objects mm. um, that they're looking to place in museums and that just recently um, in addition to john owen who we did not know and this um, came because of his interest in Sedalia. Um, we also uh, recently offered a gift from a couple in Kansas City and then um, a doctor in, at the, who works at the Mayo Clinic had a large scale ceramic sculpture by Cliff Garten, and he also um, offered that as a, a donation to the museum.
0: Hmm. So you have three exhibitions per cycle. Do you have oh, three cycles per year? How many exhibitions do you usually have at one time?
2: Um, anywhere from d- at least two to to three or four. We, um, I'll, we have a, an, a satellite gallery in the on the campus, the Goddard Gallery, and. That also has a, right now it's being used for the college's 50th anniversary, but typically we'd be, we'd be changing something over in there as well. So anywhere from three to four, three times a year.
0: And so right now, uh, I think January the 26th, is that right? Yes. You can see the P. John Owen collection, The Hill Becomes a Valley, American Landscape Photography, from his collection. Uh, you can also see pairings put together by our very own Tom Pichet mm-hmm. um, <laughs> from the permanent collection. And is there a third one coming up?
2: And there's a, a selection of uh, new and recent ceramics. The the lower level of the museum is given over entirely now to to uh, our ceramic collection.
0: Okay, recent acquisitions. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. and that is at the Dow Museum of Contemporary Art in Sedalia. You're open six days a week from 11 till 5, Tuesdays through Fridays, and one till five on Saturdays and Sundays.
2: That is, is that it. Correct. Mm-hmm. Free. Free
0: to come along.
2: Dumbmuseum.org. And like us on Facebook.
0: And if you feel so inclined, become a member.
2: We love our members.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Matt Rayner and Tom Pichet from the Down Gallery. Thank,
2: Thank you. you. Thank you for having us.
0: You are listening to Speaking of the Arts and I've been talking with Tom Pichet, Matt Rayner from the Dam Gallery in Sedalia. We are going to move straight on to a roundup of events that are coming up in Colombia over the next seven days. Gentlemen, you are free to stay and listen or free to leave. Uh, <laughs> so we have another weather issue this weekend. The weather may well be thwarting art plans this weekend. So do check with venues before you set off. It is the opening weekend for Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Peter and the Starcatcher tonight and tomorrow the show starts at 7.30 plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday tickets are $14 and if you don't see it this weekend there are two more weekends that you can see it continuing the fifth annual Missouri Fest tonight at the Blue Note is the Missouri Funk Fest with guests the Mobile Funk Unit the Funky Butt Brass Band from St. Louis and the Fried Crawdaddies that show starts at 8.30 and tickets are $8 over at Rose Music Hall tonight is the Missouri Emo Fest with plenty of angst provided by Young Medicine Mock Love the Astounds the Adaptation and Wasting Daylight The show at Rose starts at 8.30 and tickets are $5 On Saturday night at the Blue Note you can check out the Missouri Country Fest with bands Murphy's Ford Porter Union Hallie Kearns and Dirt Road Addiction That show starts at 8 and tickets are $8 At Rose Music Hall tomorrow night it's the Missouri Reggae Fest with Aaron Cammon and the One Drops the Driftaways 314 and the Crate to Crate sound system Their doors open there at 9 and tickets are $7 and down in Jefferson City at the Bridge you can check Check out a Tom Petty tribute night performed by Last Dance, and that's at 8. On Sunday, the University Concert Series holds its first event of the new year with the return of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra to Jesse Hall. The show starts at 7 and tickets start at $22. And at Rose on Sunday night, you can hear North Carolina's Sarah Shook and the Disarmers, along with Mid-Missouri's own Paul Weber and the Scrappers. That show starts at 8 and tickets are $10. Um, This week, be sure to check out the 14th Annual High School Art Show, and that's at Columbia College's Larson Gallery. That's only going to be on display for one week, just through Saturday. Tuesday evening, former Missouri Poet Laureate Walter Bargan will be reading from his new book, My Other Mother's Red Mercedes, and that's going to be at Daniel Boone Regional Library at 7. Wednesday evening, identical twins Nalani and Serena visit Columbia from New Jersey with their traditionalist soul, rock and modern pop. Check them out at Rose Music Hall. Their show starts at 730 and tickets are 15. And Thursday afternoon next week it is the closing reception at the Bingham Gallery for the MU Undergrad Juried Exhibition and the Showcase. That event is free and open to all and runs from 4.30 till 6.30. At the Daniel Boone Regional Library Northern Irish band Conla will be bringing their folk music to town at 7pm next Thursday. At Rose Music Hall you can hear Kind Country playing a blend of American standards and their own brand of cosmic American music. $15 gets you in the door and it's an 8.30 show. And finally it's Stevens College next Thursday. It is the opening night for the annual dance company concert entitled "Still I Rise," which will combine classical ballet, modern and contemporary dance, choreographed by visiting guest artists. The dance performance can be seen at the Macklenburg Playhouse, and it starts at 7:30. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN, Columbia, with me, Diana Moxen, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.